and it was out of places like the Little Trinidad Club that the idea for Carabana um, came about. But at the center of our whole upbringing was always, it was always about community, it was always about politics, but it was also always about partying. People would come to the, the bar and they would be talking to him about their legal problems. So he said, okay, like, yeah, let's open a law firm. They were, they were taking black and queer people down to Cherry Beach and, you know, beating the living daylights out of us. Um, my parents would put on um, gallery shows in the house because there was nowhere else where black artists could really display their work. Albert Johnson was murdered um, by two police officers and I will never ever forget walking into their home and seeing the door frame shattered. I'm Ken Moffat and this is Downstream from What? So thank you so much for doing this interview with me. Um, I you know, part of the uh, prompting of this interview was that we got discussing uh, some local uh, streetscapes that we both knew, some public spaces we both knew, and how in some ways they might have been colonized or lost. Um, and I know your own personal story is really tied up in downtown Toronto streetscapes. And part of what interests me is just how to capture local, the local, in a time when everything's moving to a kind of capital or with a capital C or um, imagery that could land anywhere or voices as if they're not situated anywhere. Um, so if we might just start, could you talk a little about where you grew up in Toronto, how you experienced that? Thanks, Ken. I'm Kike Roach, and I'm currently the Unifor Chair in Social Justice and Democracy at what is now called Toronto Metropolitan University, formerly Ryerson. I still call it X. <laughs> um, but I also introduce myself often as a recovering lawyer, and I'll probably get into why I use that phrase. But I grew up uh, really very much downtown on a small street called Selby Street, which is a really interesting street in itself. It's kind of um, very close to Rosedale and also very close to St. Jamestown. And um, for those of you who don't know, Rosedale is a very established, moneyed, upper, upper class um, neighborhood. And St. Jamestown was, uh, and is, a series of um, high-rise buildings that, were, uh, that are primarily populated by working class immigrant folks. Um, and so Selby is somewhere straddled in between those two worlds. And um, I grew up to... Um, Trinidadian immigrant parents. Um, they came and when they first moved to Toronto, my dad told me that he used to rent uh, a room in the Cameron House on Queen Street, which is like a, a club. He used to rent a, a room for a week for eight bucks, I think. <laughs> um, and um, he made his way as a, as a Calypsonian, as a musician, before heading off to 
law school. And um, my mom also came and was living at, when they first moved here, they were living in rooming houses, actually. on um, They lived on a rooming house on um, St. George Street. And, um, and then sort of made their way around the city before coming to Selby Street, which was again made up of rooming houses as well. And two of them, there was a terrible fire that broke out in two of them. And a friend encouraged them to like scrape up the little bit of money that they had and purchase these two homes, five and seven Selby. One they used at what, at what would become my parents' civil rights um, law firm. Uh, where they would be representing people like um, Black Panthers and uh, other people escaping the draft um, in the States, uh, new immigrants who were coming trying to get uh, permanent resident status, um, where they would be taking up um, human rights cases, you know, people being discriminated on, on the job, um, you know, people working in... in um, you know, security jobs, other kinds of, you know, frontline working class jobs where they were being, you know, discriminated against um, because they were not white, you know, they, they were being harassed by other people and so on. And um, my mother was somebody who uh, assisted my dad greatly in that she was a legal clerk. And so she knew how the business of how a law firm was run. And my dad was somebody who was one of just maybe about two or three black students who graduated from U of T Law School in the early 1960s. So that was a pretty special accomplishment for him um, because he, he came from a working class family, as did my mom as well. So they made a dynamic duo. And... Um, they were representing all of these people, she as a, a manager and he as, as a lawyer, civil rights lawyer. The business happened in one house and we lived in the house right beside. But at the center of our whole upbringing was always, it was always about community, it was always about politics, but it was also always about partying. Like they were serious, serious party people. Um, and in fact, um, my parents ran a nightclub on Young Street. It was called the Little Trinidad Club. And it's, it was in a little, um, on the second floor of a small uh, business that is right opposite where the Eaton Center is now. So the Little Trinidad Club was really a landmark because it was introducing Toronto in the early 60s to Calypso, to Caribbean culture. It was bringing in um, famous, uh, what, what would become famous um, Calypsonians like Sparrow and all of these people. And it was uh, a hub of interaction for um, early Caribbean immigrants. And it was out of places like the Little Trinidad Club that the idea for Caravana um, came about. So my dad ended up being the first chairperson of Caravana, which we now sometimes people refer to as Toronto Carnival. But most people who are real Torontonians would keep calling it Caravana. And Caravana was basically our culture pouring out onto the streets. This was what we call the mass, masquerade. 
which is um, a kind of culture that developed in um, parts of South America as well as the Caribbean, um, which was really a response to um, colonialism in its origins. It was um, enslaved people um, taking on costume and taking on the rhythms of um, both European musical influences as well as African musical influences, um, and as well as the steel pan, which is an original musical instrument created from um, wor oil workers, actually. So Trinidad was, uh, became wealthy due to its uh, production of oil, and, um, you know, Trinidadians being very musical people were like, you know, looking for ways to express themselves um, rhythmically, musically, and working class people um, took the oil drums and fashioned them into percussive instruments. And that became, you know, the, the, the foundation for calypso music and something that is very, very prevalent through the carnival, through mass. And so mass is something that you, you play as a way of talking politics, as a way of both partying and speaking about politics, right? So the famous Calypsonians were always ones who were poking fun at um, and talking about corruption and talking about, you know, what was wrong with the country and, and inequality and stuff like that, but always in a jokey, fun sort of ribbing sort of way. So that was very much the culture of that my parents grew up in and that they, that they brought with them. And at the time when my, my dad first started practicing law, actually, um, after he graduated from U of T, he, he got his first job as a lawyer with the city of Toronto. So he actually worked as a city solicitor while he was running this nightclub. And one day his boss said to him, look, you, it, this is not a good look for you, okay? You, you gotta make up your mind. You're either called to the bar and practicing as a lawyer or you're running a bar. You can't do both. <laughs> um, which wasn't really true. It was just, you know, a stuffy sort of, um, you know, attitude that his, that his employer had. So um, it wasn't easy running this bar either. I mean, it was very popular, and that's where my dad ended up gaining the confidence to feel, well, I can break out on my own and actually establish my own practice, because people would come to the, the bar, and they would be talking to him about their legal problems. So he said, okay, like, yeah, let's open uh, a law firm. His first law firm was open on the corner of Brunswick and Bloor, where there's still a little house there that sells ice cream, I think, um, in the summer. That was his first place. Then they moved on to Selby. And Selby became uh, a place where the law firm did the kind of work that I described. And our home became the kind of place where the parties would happen. And um, not only musicians, but also some of the early black artists... Um, would display their work. People who ran, who established um, Black Theatre Canada. Mural artists like Atu Setu, um, you know, would come. And we would put on, um, my parents would put on um, 
basically like gallery shows in the house because there was nowhere else where black artists could really display their work. And my dad was an artist himself as well. Um, in addition to being a musician, he was a poet and a, a painter. Selby Street was a really exciting place to grow up, um, not just because of um, the kinds of people that my parents um, were, were working with and frequenting, um, but also because it was a street where it, it's bordered between uh, Sherburne Street on one hand and Huntley Street on the other hand, and it's just like a block south of Bloor. And on one end of the street, on Sherburne, at the corner of um, Sherburne and Selby was the Selby Hotel. And the Selby Hotel has its own storied history itself. It was the place where uh, I, I learned later, Ernest Hemingway lived there for a while while he was reporting for the Toronto Star. It was the, the mansion of the um, Goodrum family that, that established um, Goodrum Warts um, distilleries in Toronto. Um, and later it was uh, a major hotspot for gay men. Um, because in the basement, um, I think it was starting in the late 70s, early 80s, um, different um, gay nightclubs sort of started operating out of the basement of the Selby Hotel. So on the one end of the street, um, gay men were partying. <laughs> and then on the other end of the street, um, on Huntley, Christian evangelicals um, opened the first... Um, television broadcast studio and they started running a, a television program called 100 Huntley Street that is still on the air today um, like many decades later I, as a kid I was out in front uh, you know of our, of our house you know playing with my friend Erica who grew up in St. Jamestown along the street <laughs> were like polar opposite worlds you know like sort of <laughs> And, um, and then a huge um, building was erected and a shopping plaza called Greenwind Square um, developed uh, right across the street where um, what back in the day, you know, they would have called um, people who hung out in front of Greenwind Square hobos. That's just the language of the day, disparaging that we recognize that now. But today we would just say homeless people. Um, would be hanging out in front there, you know, and actually I'm not sure if they were really truly homeless, um, but they would congregate there, you know, and just, it was just a place to hang out and, and talk and stuff like that. So that's where I grew up for the first 10 or 12 years of my life. <laughs> Incredible, <laughs> like such a rich history. I uh, knew, I've told you before, I knew Selby Street myself intimately because I was living down at uh, Parliament and Girard at the time in a not dissimilar between space between uh, Regent Park and Cabbage Town, and I was right on Girard, so it was very much between spaces. So I understand this uh, with all the different influences. And uh, I'm liking to imagine there'd be parties in your house while, while I was partying in the Sherburne Hotel, because <laughs> I know that bar, and I knew it infinitely. <laughs> 
intimately myself. <laughs> and I wonder if I was one of those hobos you saw. <laughs> I, I like the, I remember uh, you telling me this in the past, you talked about a concrete bench. Yes. And I right. remember that. Right. This is where it can be very specific, yes. our memories. Yes. Do you mind talking about the concrete yeah, bench? Yeah, well, that's where we would see these, it was largely men. Yes, who were hanging out on the concrete yeah. bench. And, um, you know, because my parents were always so busy, they decided that they were not going to have the typical, you know, green grass front yard. So um, they were trying to figure out, okay, what are we going to do with this front yard? And my dad just, just decided we're going to just import a bunch of rocks and, you know, like, you know, those decorative gemstone kind of rocks or whatever. And he had one of the first... But it was really unusual at the time to have a, a front yard like that. It was like a rock garden front yard. So I was always out in the front there with Erica playing. Um, and almost as a regular fixture was the guys on the concrete bench. Yes. You know, just hanging out, you know, uh, having some brewskis, you know, and just like... <laughs> And just, you know, they were just living life. And nobody, and one of the things that I now think about in the current climate is that no one troubled them and they didn't bother anybody, you know? They just were there. Sometimes they were there all day, you know, like well into the night. And, you know, no one came along and, and you know, decided that they needed to sweep them away. You know, they were there. They were part of the neighborhood, and the neighborhood consisted as much as us running this little um, civil rights law firm as the gay men partying, as the Christian evangelicals, as, you know, right next to us was a rooming house still. And people in there who, I remember one of the characters who I remember lived right next door to us was a woman named Dubari Kampo. I will always remember mm -hmm. that name. She was a, what we would call like a, a, a society journalist, gossip type person, you know, and she would, I just remember her because she was um, just this like middle-aged woman with a beehive who wore a boa and just was like full of life, you know, and and those were the people on the street, you know. Um, later on, uh, a photographer moved in with his young family. There were just all kinds of different people. And then later on, you know, all kinds of different people moved into the apartment building mm -hmm. in Greenwind Square. Um, and that's where I remember my sisters, you know, in their little Girl Guides outfits, would be going selling the cookies and everything like that. And it was just, it was a time when as a kid, you would be outside you'd be outside playing, mm -hmm. you know? And we would be playing with the kids from um, St. Jamestown. And I remember my aunt, you know, she lived in one of the apartments in St. Jamestown and she became somebody who was um, a tenant rep because she had to fight off um, the, uh, the developer who was always trying to increase their rent you know, who was never looking after the property properly. And she, she, she had to fight it as uh, a tenant herself. And then she went and became a community legal worker. And she spent the next decades of her life fighting on um, tenant rights issues and working with, you know, uh, on, in tenant legal clinics and, you know, community legal clinics, basically. 
yes, there were class divisions. You know, there were there was um, that was a time when you know people were getting attacked on the street. Um, when we started to see some of the the uh, real political activism in the black community, in the Caribbean community. And it was a time when, um, you know, uh, the police were raiding uh, the bathhouses, right? They were, they were taking black and queer people down to Cherry Beach and, you know, beating the living daylights out of us. You know, and people had to mobilize. And, and there were skinheads, right, in the east end of Toronto especially. Skinheads were out there um, beating the living daylights out of, you know, uh, new immigrants from Pakistan and um, other South Asian countries. You know, and so there was a burgeoning um, sort of uh, political alliances being made by a lot of the folks who had escaped from the U.S., from the draft, right? White uh, progressives, socialist thinking, anti-war, you know, they started coming together with, um, you know, folks like my parents. And they were founding organizations like the International Committee Against Racism. And they were, they were thinking globally, too. They were, they were against... Um, you know, the remnants of the colonial powers in, um, in Africa. So they were working in solidarity with the anti-apartheid movement and stuff like that. And that would grow even more prominently into the 80s. Downtown Toronto was very much part of all of this. Um, Bathurst Street is another street that really comes to mind as a place where things were really happening. You know, you had people like uh, a young Dion Brand, um, a young Akua Benjamin, um, who later went on to found the Black Action Defense Committee and who was for years a professor in sociology at, um, at was what was then Ryerson University. Like when Caribbean people first came to Toronto, everyone said, go to Bathurst Street, you know? And people hung out on the, the benches in front of Bathurst subway station. And sometimes people just hung out there and just would watch to see, okay, who are the newbies? Who, who looks like they're just totally confused? And that's where you befriended people, right? You told them, Honest Ed's over there has good deals for, you know, you're setting up your household. They said, go over to Golden's for your haircut, you know, at the barber's. Um, like Bathurst Street um, between Harvard and um, DuPont had many b small black businesses, you know, people setting up um, for, you know, hard to find goods that they would, you know, be importing themselves, right? But it was a place where famously the third world books and crafts run by um, Gwen and Lenny Johnson became like basically a political school for people who were hungry to talk about politics. Not just about local politics, but about everything that was happening in the world. And a stone's throw away from there was Bickford Park, um, 
high school where the African Liberation Day, which was like an annual celebration of Pan-Africanists, would gather there to talk about um, things. Uh, people like um, Stokely Carmichael, who later became Kwame Touré, would speak there. And it was, it was about politics, but it was also about culture. You know, it, there would be musicians, the foods, right? The foods of different people's countries. And I remember that my first memory... So Bickford Park is like right almost across the street from Christie Pitts. My first memory of being at Christie Pitts was as a little kid surrounded by what seemed to me like thousands of black people and um, progressive white, mostly socialists, protesting the police killing of Albert Johnson. Albert Johnson was murdered um, by two police officers in his home on Manchester Avenue, which is not far from Christie Pitts. Um, and it was particularly memorable to me because my dad knew the Johnsons. Um, and so my dad got a call one day from Lamona Johnson telling him to get to her place as soon as possible. And he he was looking after me at the time, and he just brought me in tow. And I will never, ever forget walking into their home and seeing the door frame shattered and seeing uh, a bewildered Lamona Johnson pointing out the blood splatter on her kitchen wall and describing to us how she had been cooking a pot of rice and peas and the police barged into her home got into a physical altercation with her husband spilling all of the food all over the place, chasing him up the stairs and then killing him in front of his daughter, Colsey. Um, they shot him, I, I, I think he was at the top of the stairs and later the news said, claimed that he was um, waving a sharp Im implement at them at the time, but that is, you know, that was disputed by the family. And that became, that along with the Buddy Evans killing, became one of the most explosive political events of the late 70s, early 80s, and really galvanized um, uh, black political activism and consciousness in Toronto. That, the mobilization around that particular killing spawned later on um, many other organizations to come forward. Not to say that there weren't other organizations before. There was, um, you know, the Marcus Garvey-inspired UNIA that had its headquarters on college right near Spadina um, and other groups like that. But uh, for the newcomers, right, the new people like the Akua Benjamins, the, uh, the, the Mead family, the Dion Brands and so on, the killing of Albert Johnson was really a decisive moment. And it was for me too because, um, not only because I actually arrived, you know, shortly after he was killed and to hear a direct account from Lamona Johnson, but also because um, 
I remember the thousands of people gathering at Christie Pitts and walking to the police headquarters. Kike's story is so rich, we decided to offer it as two episodes. Watch for the second one coming up next week. Downstream from what is a co-creation of myself, Ken Moffat, and Ben McCarthy. Art is by Autumn Fazari, score by Ben McCarthy. Funded by the Dean, Faculty of Community Services, the Dean, Faculty of Arts, and the Office of the President at Toronto Metropolitan University. <laughs>